first scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Would y'all pray with me again this morning? Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of today, the gift of each other, and the opportunity to come together in your name in this place to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to your scripture. You would let us hear your words through them. Lord, I pray that you would move in this place today, that your spirit would be active and would bring transformation into each of our lives. Lord, for myself, I pray that my words would do nothing but bring glory to you, because otherwise they're empty and meaningless. Lord, I pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So out in southwest Texas, there's this town called Sabinal. And there's not much in Sabinal. It's, it's a stop, if that, uh, in between San Antonio and Del Rio. Uh, and it's a pretty small kind of place. It's one of those sorts of towns where you've got to drive to the next town over to go to the movie theater or Walmart. So uh, it's, it's really not overstating it to say that there's not much to do there. But every year, there's this big event that happens in Sabinal called the Hog Festival. And people come from all around. They come from all throughout the county to see the spectacle that is the Hog Festival every year. Now, what happens here is people set up tents, local artisans uh, sell some of their goods, not unlike a craft bazaar uh, that we have here but a little bit bigger and outdoors. Uh, so people have their tents and uh, there's some German music and people doing dancing and all kinds of good food. But the centerpiece of this whole event is, uh, it's, it's, it's country, I'll warn you. Uh, it's hog wrestling. And to say that it's country is, is probably just to, uh, to undersell it a little bit. How this works, is two people walk into a pen, uh, a team, and they release a hog, and they have to wrestle it into a bag and drag it across a line. Um, and whoever does it fastest wins a belt buckle. 
So that's how the Hog Festival works. Now, the thing about it is, it's, you know, the Hog Festival isn't anything particularly special. It's, it's a fun kind of distraction for an afternoon. You go there, you get some fried food, you watch some people wrestle hogs and uh, get on one of those carnival type rides that you're pretty sure you'll survive. And, uh, and then you go back home. But in a place where there's not much else to do, something like this is a big deal. You know, these are, these are people who uh, work hard and uh, they'll, they'll do their, their jobs, they'll go to school, but there's not really a whole lot of other kinds of attractions in Sabinal, Texas. But once a year, there is this big event. And so everybody comes together. It's amazing what people will do when there's uh, nothing better to do. This is one of the reasons why it's, it's so important to keep uh, teenage boys occupied because they'll get themselves into trouble if they're left to their own devices for too long. Uh, they say that idle hands are the devil's plaything. And there's a lot to that because people will go to extraordinary lengths just to be distracted, just to have something to do or something to see. And for as true as that is now, it was even more so true in the days before constant uh, media distractions, television and cell phones. And even before that, even before the days of radio, or only a couple of television channels that only broadcast at certain hours, there were centuries where people really had nothing to do. And that's where, that's where our scripture comes in. This is where all of the Gospels take place, is in this time period where everything's hot, and it's kind of miserable, and people would wake up and they would do their work. Generally, they would either labor in fields or they'd work with their hands as artisans uh, or, or uh, people who had some kind of craft. And their days were regulated by when the sun came up and when the sun went back down, and if you weren't working, you were probably eating or sleeping, and if you were sleeping, it was probably on the hard ground. So to say that there wasn't a whole lot going on uh, is, is probably accurate. And so I want you to imagine where the people were uh, as they heard this news, that there's a strange man outside of town who wears weird clothes and eats bugs and honey and is raving about something significant. If you were people who just worked and slept all the time, this would probably sound like a pretty good distraction. This would probably seem like something interesting to go see. And so, without anything better to do, the people started to go. And they started to listen to this strange man just outside of the town gates. And they get there, expecting a distraction. And what they find instead is a really powerful message. They go without anything better to do and hear that they've been waiting for a savior and they've forgotten that one is supposed to come, but he's coming. They come as people who are trapped under the oppression of the Romans who lived their lives watched by centurions and soldiers in the streets, who 
barely make a living, and what they do make pretty much goes back to Caesar. And now they go expecting something to take their mind off their troubles and find somebody proclaiming that their troubles are coming to an end because a Savior is coming. They've been waiting for so long for salvation. And now, in the desert, from a strange man, they hear that finally something is, is going to happen. They'd endured so much. And so in a lot of ways, I think it's fitting that this first proclamation of a coming Savior to the people of Israel came somewhere as harsh as a desert. Because for years, generations even, the people had been wandering in a desert of their own. The way to Jesus had run through challenging places. The people of Israel had known for generations, for centuries at this point, nothing but sadness and loss. Loss of their friends and loss of their livelihoods. Worst of all, maybe loss of their identity as the kingdom of God. As a chosen people who were supposed to be set aside for something great, yet here they were, barely more than slaves. <clears throat> the way to Jesus had taken them through emptiness, the sense that nothing better was coming, that this was all that there was. Through the pain of labor and hard work and the exhaustion of day after day of more of the same. And yet, through all of that, God was working to bring the people to this moment, to hear this message that one is coming who's greater than me, that one is coming who will make all of this worthwhile, who will redeem everything that you've been through. A Savior is coming, and He's coming soon. Friends, in the same way that the Israelites had wandered in a desert so long before, and had wandered through this metaphorical desert in the days before Jesus, so many of us come to the cross as people who've wandered through a desert of our own. Many of us come with the same sorts of sadness and loss and emptiness or pain or exhaustion. And we come looking for something, hoping for someone. And so as we come here today, as people who've wandered ourselves, let us hear again this voice that's crying out in the wilderness, that there is hope and there's someone who will change everything. Hear the good news that this doesn't have to be all that there is. This doesn't have to be how the story ends. And so the people are paying attention. They hear John. They want a Savior. They want to know what is coming, who is coming. And so John continues on. And what, is, what does he say? They come saying, we're ready 
How do we prepare to be a part of this? And John's message is simply repent. I come baptizing by water for repentance. Well, hold on a second now. The people had come and they'd been enticed by this message that someone was going to come and save them. People who'd been under Roman rule after being exiled before that. And then he's telling them that they need to repent. They wanted freedom from their captors. Why did they need to do anything? If we're going to be set free, then why is repentance the message that John is preaching? Well, it's simple. And John is pointing to this fact that the one who's coming, that Jesus has come not just for something as small as Rome. He's come to set the people free from more than just their earthly captors. He's come to set them free from the powers of death and sin themselves, from the strongest captors and the firmest chains that there are, the ones that have, have persisted throughout every occupation and every exile and every plague and every war. And repentance gives the people the first glimpse of what's coming. It's an opportunity for the people to turn away from where they've been so that God can make them pure, so that they are ready for what's coming. In repentance, they prepare their hearts, and in repentance, we prepare our hearts for the work of Jesus. It's this message that your sins can be washed away now, so that as Jesus comes to purify everything, not just you and not just me, but the whole world, that we can stand ready for that. And John comes and gives this illustration in proper preaching fashion. He says that the work of God through Jesus is going to be like one threshing and winnowing wheat. I don't know if any of y'all have seen or know anything about what it was like to thresh or winnow wheat back in the day. But it was like this. The people would gather up the wheat stalks. And you know, wheat, it grows and, and it's got a stalk and it's got grains at the top that are in little husks. And so in order to get the grains out, which people made flour from, they had to take the, the whole stalk and thresh it, which meant they gathered it into bundles and they beat it against the ground until all of those little husks came off of the stalks. And they were left with just this bundle of, of uh, dried wheat stalk, straw essentially. And so they would take it, they would sometimes use it for some things, but they would oftentimes just throw it away. It was waste. You couldn't eat it, and so there wasn't really much point to it. But that wasn't the end of it. That was just the first step, because now, even though you've gotten it off the stalks, there's still the dried husks and holes, what they call the chaff of the wheat that's left. And so the people would have to gather up the grains that they wanted and the chaff, and they would throw them through the wind so that it would carry away all of the lighter, uh, the lighter chaff, the, the dried up, withered hulls. And they'd finally be left 
with just the wheat that they wanted. And John says that the work of God is like one who's doing this, who's separating out the wheat from the chaff. It says that our world and our lives are just like these wheat grains. We're mixed in and covered with all of this junk that isn't good, that's not wholesome, that we can't do anything with. And Jesus comes in to do the work, to separate all of it out so that we're left with just what's good and pure. He separates out all of that baggage, but he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just throw it to the wind. It says that he casts it into unquenchable fire. He separates out the good from the bad, and he takes all of that junk, all of that withered, dried-up stuff, and throws it into the fire so that it's burned up and gone. Not just cast away, but really and truly gone. This isn't an easy or fun process, but it's good. And I know so many of us, when we hear about fire in the context of Scripture, think about something that's kind of, uh, kind of bad, that's kind of unpleasant, or, or something sort of like punishment. But the truth is, Scripture, far more often than that, talks about fire as the power of God. We see the fire of the Spirit come in Pentecost, and in this time, what John is proclaiming to the people is that the Spirit will fall on them, that the fire of God, the same fire that burns up the chaff of our lives, has come to mend our spirits, has come to fill the spaces left by that sadness and loss, that emptiness and pain and exhaustion. Friends, as we work our way towards Christmas, towards a quiet night in a manger, this is what's coming. In the form of a child, the Spirit comes in fullness into the world. The one who's been promised for so long, who we've been waiting for all of our lives, finally comes. The birth of Jesus brings the fullness of the Spirit into the world so that all who seek deliverance can find it. So hear the voice in the wilderness. Wherever you are today, there is one who will set you free from your burdens, from your struggles, and from your pain. And if you trust him, if you trust in the name of Jesus, then you will find pure life, abundant life, beyond anything you could ever even begin to imagine. Thanks be to God.